welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. This week, it's going to be a little bit unusual. I'll be interviewing Jim, our, our usual co-host, and Jamie Morgan, who is a PhD student at the Heller School of Social Policy. And the two of them just worked together on a report that you can find at justfuturesfund.org titled Accelerating Equity and Justice, Basic Income and Generational Wealth. So hello, Jamie and Jim. Hello, Owen. Hello. So to start, why don't you uh, talk about how this report came into being, and then we'll get into what it says. So this all started a little less than a year ago. I had gotten in touch with Professor Tom Shapiro, who runs the Institute for Asset and Social Policies within the Heller School, and had talked to him saying that it felt like there was a space uh, out there for some really fleshed out UBI policy proposals, and particularly ones that were very centered on equity, racial equity, and economic equity, and asked him if he wanted to collaborate on, on this new project where we would map out what, what a policy here would look like and then do some analysis around what sort of impact it would actually have on people's lives. And so that started this process going. We talked to the Economic Security Project. They generously gave us some support to be able to do this work. And so in the months since then, we, we pulled together this report. And as the title implies, what it's doing is really bring together a UBI, a universal basic income, where everyone is getting money every month, along with these accounts for children that allow them to build up wealth so that when they become an adult, they have access to a pool of wealth. And that side of it being more targeted so that it's really giving additional assistance to people growing up in asset-poor families. And so being able to, to catch them up as far as having that same level of support. So let's start digging into the report itself. Jamie, could you give us a, a quick tour of the plan you're proposing? So we are looking at doing a cash transfer intervention um, and then also doing modeling for a system that would be like children's savings accounts. Um, so for the cash transfers, um, doing the popular uh, model that was $1,000 a month for everybody in the household that was over the age of 18, um, and then additional money for um, children that are present in the household as well. And then for the child savings accounts, looking at something very similar to Senator Booker's plan, in which everybody starts out with $1,000 at birth, and then there are tiered levels based off of the household income that are also deposited each month into accounts that are then accessible when a child turns 18. And looking at how these different um, interventions would impact the federal poverty line for people um, as they uh, receive this monthly cash transfer or as they as the generation turns 18 and they're able to access into that wealth building pool of money that's been made available for them. Yeah, I, I noticed that that did look a lot like the, the Booker baby bond program. Um, if I recall correctly, he put some restrictions on what that money could be used for once once the child turns 18 uh, to things generally associated with wealth building like education and property is there any, any such restrictions in this proposal, or is it just you get the cash? For us, we wanted to do this as strings-free as possible, and so we were just modeling what the impact would be if 
people were able to invest this money however they wanted to um, and what that would mean for their household poverty at that point when they turn 18. And the results were pretty drastic. Yeah, so I want to get into to this part of things because I think our listeners are, are hopefully familiar with the idea of basic income. Uh, but why include a um, the, the kids' futures accounts, as you call it? So let's just make sure we've got the policy fleshed out. So it's $1,000 at birth. And then uh, up to $2,000 per year based on, is it the family's wealth? Yes, that's right. The total household uh, income. And, and because we talk a lot about the, the you know, difficulties of targeting and, and how uh, targeting often leads to more problems than it solves, why, why is this part of the, the plan targeted instead of just saying, you know, you get, say, an extra $1,000 a year added to the, the fund? Why, why base it on the family's income? So I think there's a couple things to look at there. The first is just upfront recognize this is going to require an, a new assessment by the government that right now there isn't actually a measurement on wealth that, that happens for, for families on a regular basis. And so just as with a wealth tax, this would mean adding this new capacity to be tracking that. But were we to do that, I think a lot of the challenges that come with targeting around income is that sometimes it's not fully capturing the situation that people are experiencing. You may have volatility in your income. Uh, you may have suddenly have get a new job with higher income, and that causes major changes to the sort of support you get or vice versa, whereas wealth tends to be more steady. And so that's something where if we were to start tracking it, then we, we could use as perhaps a more reliably consistent measure of, of where folks are at. But yeah, as far as why target, I think this is an area where we're trying to really understand where the lack of equity is today. And we have many households that just have plenty of wealth. And so to say, all right, we're really going to focus our resources on on the ones that that are left behind here um, is a way of ensuring that uh, as as far as that underlying support structure that that we're, we're really building the floor more universally across the board. Yeah, and to add to the, the Heller School is out of work to look at um, child poverty and what can be really successful to alleviate that. And children's savings accounts have been one of the areas that we've been really looking into, in addition to uh, student debt being a very large problem for people. And so having the ability to access uh, a large amount of wealth at the beginning of adulthood can really make a steady impact in somebody's ability to pay for college or to invest in uh, uh, vocational training or open a small business or do whatever they need to do because their parents aren't able to offer that for them. Yeah. So uh, I'm wondering if you have, obviously it'd be a pretty big range, but some sense of how much wealth, how much money we might be talking about um, that becomes accessible when someone turns 18 and what the effects of that might be. So looking at the proposal structure that we did off of the Booker report, um, Estimated wealth increases can be anywhere from about $46,000 at the like first tier for people who are in what we consider to be deep asset poverty. Um, and then at the very top end of that, it might only be like $1,600 for people that are um, well above the federal poverty guidelines um, or asset poverty. Um, and so there's a pretty 
big range there for people. Um, but the idea that you might be able to be tap into an additional like $46,000 for people who have maybe a negative or no income situation would be in a very powerful way for people to start off very differently. Um, and I think that it would be very compelling to see where that money ends up becoming invested in themselves and within their family structure. And, and you touched on it earlier, and I think Jim did, but I wonder if either of you want to unpack a little bit more the idea of asset poverty as opposed to just poverty. So it really comes down to recognizing the different ways that people can be struggling. And we often think about just income when we talk about are people doing okay or not. And it's true, if you have consistently high income, then you're probably going to be fine. But as I mentioned earlier, what we see so often is that income is pretty volatile. And so you may be doing quite well for a few months or even a couple of years, but if after that time something happens and suddenly you lose your job or there's some other crisis that suddenly requires a major expense, if you don't have a large amount of assets to back that up, then even again, if you've been earning a lot of money, you may still be in trouble. And so the underlying assets, the wealth that you have there, it really gives you resilience in a way that you often don't get with income. And so, um, but obviously you need income. If, if you just have wealth and no income, that's only going to last you so long. So these are really two parts of the puzzle that both need to be in place in order for people to actually be fully financially secure. So the federal poverty guidelines determine income poverty for a family of four at about $24,000 uh, in 2016, which is where we did our data from. Um, so a conservative measure of asset poverty that we used in this report was defined as um, anything less than three times uh, the income at that federal poverty threshold of $24,000 um, a year. So that would be a monthly uh, calculation. And so deep asset poverty would then be households who have a negative housing wealth within that terminology. Um, so we're talking about people at the very uh, low end of uh, the economic spectrum here, but still capturing um, a large portion of our sample and the uh, American people. And so the in terms of dollars spent, the main part of this program, of course, would be the basic income portion. Do you see some synergistic effects with a basic income and a child futures fund working together, or are they both just good ideas that would help eliminate poverty? I would say both. I think that on their own, they both can add value. But I do think that there is definitely something that comes beyond that when they're coupled together. And that's because, as, as we were just talking about, that you have families across the country that may struggle on both these fronts. And they're basically, I like to think of it as like, you're trying to fill kind of a bowl of people having enough, and these are two holes that may be there. And if you don't plug both of them, if you're putting more money into the, or more water, more money into the bowl, then you're helping people, but not nearly as much as if you can actually give them that underlying security. And so by, by addressing both the lack of wealth and the potential lack of income, you're, you're really ensuring people are being lifted up regardless of their situation. And Jamie, did you want to add anything there? I think that the only thing that I would add is that um, even with the uh, child savings account, since they're going through um, more broad based as well, um, you are getting people who are within that kind of like uh, 
tier three out of the six tiers. So the middle of the pack are still benefiting from um, turning 18 and getting almost $23,000, which I think anybody who's looking at like entering into higher education um, or considering taking like more of a part-time internship or um, entering into the job market is really going to be able to benefit from something like that. um, In addition to growing up in a household that's been more financially secure as well. So I think that being able to not only have a consistency for income for a household that is able to provide um, all of the time, but having this like jump start for uh, every child when they turn 18 is really going to be impactful as to how people start off uh, their lives. And yeah, you mentioned uh, student loans earlier and it you know, occurs to me that if you had, you're getting your thousand dollars a month, but you know, a few hundred of that is going away in, in student loan payments, then that's already a, a big chunk of your, your income. Um, but if you had this, you know, maybe $20,000 up front to um, reduce those student loans before they even happen, that would make a huge difference going forward. Absolutely. So one thing I noticed looking over the, the calculations that, that you have in the report is that in poverty, as, as you would expect, drastically reduces for, for every group involved. Uh, but among the elderly, it is eliminated entirely. Um, whereas for even adults with no children, it's drastically reduced but not entirely eliminated. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand um, why that is exactly. Why, is, you know, why do adults with no children uh, and adults with children still have some small level of poverty, but, but for the elderly, it's completely eliminated? Some of this was based off of the data set that we used. Um, so the data set that we used is through uh, SIP, and that allows people to report a negative income. And so even after the cash transfers, um, there were still some people who, because of their situation and circumstances, we weren't able to get that completely down to zero. And no policy is ever going to be able to be as big of a blanket there. Um, but as I was doing these numbers, I was super excited about um our elderly population being completely lifted out of poverty and really thought about this as a way of updating and reforming what we're currently providing to that segment of the population, really with the understanding that Social Security really isn't the safety net and the promise that it has been, and that we really need to go back through and update what it is that we're able to provide for people so that they're not left behind in their older age. And um, the last thing I was wondering is if there's anything... That, that you find uh, particularly exciting either in the report itself or, or what it might lead to going forward? Yeah, I mean, I would say generally that I think what, what we've laid out in the report, which I guess we haven't said it specifically, but what we're calling a Just Futures Fund UBI plus these asset accounts together is, I think, a new approach that you really haven't seen discussed before, bringing together this is universal basic income payments and this wealth generation policy. And that that is not only do we think this particular approach is a good idea, but we're, our, the hope is that this will also kick off a larger conversation around these things being complementary and that we can start to explore different ways in which we can be tackling these together. And Jamie, anything you'd add? 
I think for me, it was really important to showcase how a universal policy can be so impactful across um, people's parental uh, circumstances, their age groups, and racial groups, and really understanding that we have deep economic disparities within this country that could be addressed through government support and really shifting the idea of how we use those funds through our um, federal system to be able to uplift people without any sort of shame or stigma and give them the capability to really decide what to do with um, what the money that they need in order to meet basic necessities and be able to be lifted out of our poverty systems. Well, those are the questions I had for you. Is there anything else either of you would like to add? I would just say when we started this project, it was before there was any word about anything related to the COVID-19 pandemic. But as we we released this only a few weeks ago, and one of the things that actually made it feel even far more salient than it already had seen was that we are seeing some pretty massive racial disparities in what impact the pandemic is having on people's lives and that Black communities, Latinx communities are being hit much, much harder generally. And so, and, and this, what we, what we see in the policy is that, as Jamie said, something universal actually has a disproportionate positive impact on these communities. And that what we're talking about here is actually the specific things that could give people far more resilience to be able to deal with crises. And so that, I, I think just as generally we're seeing a larger surge in interest around UBI in response to pandemic, our hope is that this particular angle can, can be part of that discussion. And so we make sure that we're, we're also thinking about that equity aspect of how we solve these issues. And Jamie, anything else? I think for me that this has been a really important piece to the values narratives that we're having right now, as far as where does government support go, especially during a pandemic? And you keep saying things like $60,000 for jet planes or billions of dollars for the airline industry when we could be directly investing that money into families and households for them to be able to make basic needs. And it's really where we value um where, where we value our tax dollars going for something like this um, as compared to other spending that we do currently um, and how it can have such a large individual impact and how that can create um, more stable and secure and healthy communities overall. Yeah, it is kind of striking how it's sort of the radical idea is to just invest in people directly instead of in industries and and companies um, whereas it feels like just just providing support for for people is is the thing we have to fight for. Whereas you can count on the government to you know bail out the major industries. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. Thank you to our producer Eric Davidson and wash your hands. Mm-hmm.